All right, uh, we're going to turn to two passages this morning. Um, if you want to start with uh, Numbers chapter 16. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and the book of Numbers. And I was thinking, uh, Bud asked me a couple weeks ago to preach for him. As far as I know, this is the first Sunday morning that I preach. And you can tell I'm already soaking wet. <laughs> no, it's, it's a little different. I, I, I really kind of had the mindset that preaching is no different than when I stand up there and teach. <laughs> Delivering the gospel, that's the same thing. So. But there, there's just something different about Sunday morning. It's just, it's not that it's more sacred, but it's another notch to it or something. But anyway, as I was thinking about the, uh, the message this morning, I thought, um, you know, this time of year in October, uh, whether we like to admit it or not, you know, we've got our ghost stories and our horror stories and all of that going on. So uh, God kind of laid this on my heart. I, I have mentioned it before. But I think it's some of the scariest scripture in the, in the Bible. And in doing the research in the background for it and, and that sort of thing, I found this over in, in number 16, and it, it mirrors uh, what we're going to actually preach. I'm going to preach in, in uh, Matthew this morning, but it's, it's a very similar story. But number 16, what we have here is the story of Korah. And I'm not going to read this passage because it's pretty much this whole chapter. I know that's probably a lot more Bible than most of you read in a year. 50 verses take us a while to get through. i got a long way to go. But now here's the setup. Okay. Israel has gone into the wilderness. And God has told Moses to build this tabernacle, which basically is a mobile church, okay, so that God can dwell with his people. Now, in establishing this, this tabernacle, and we've been through it, we've done the study through the tabernacle, that God wants to dwell among them. And for God to dwell among them, they're, they're because of sin has to be some kind of separation. You, you can't have complete access with God in your sinful nature. I, you, he is so holy. We can't do it. Uh, we like to think we can, and we like to think sometimes we are in there, but it's only through the blood of Jesus Christ. Once that's applied to us, then we can communicate. You see what I'm saying? And so God separated the one tribe of Levi uh, to do all the priestly work. Now, within Levi, there were families. And, of course, Aaron's family was distinguished to be the priesthood. They were the priests, and, and the elder would be the high priest. That's how God set it up. And some of the other families, I think there was the Gershonites and some of them, but there were the Kohathites, Kohath, the sons of Kohath. And their specific duty was to carry uh, all of the pieces of the tabernacle, including the furniture within and you think, well, that's a tough job. It is a tough job. But you think about what one of those articles was that they was carrying. It was on them to carry the Ark of the Covenant. What an honorable job and task that was for God to have them. But here in chapter 16, we see Korah, one of those sons, it just wasn't enough. He wanted to do more. Now, is there anything wrong with wanting to do more? No, there's not. But when God has designated a job for you, Amen. you don't add to that. You know what I'm saying? God, especially with His tabernacle, He laid out specifics. Yeah. When to do it, where to do it, how to do it, and why you do it. He didn't even have to give them the why, but He gave them a lot of the why. But here, 
Kohath does what like most of us would. He's not going to stand up on his own. He's going to go get a couple of buddies. And then they're going to go talk in people's ears. And we see there in verse 2 that they got about 250 princes uh, of the assembly. And you notice it says famous in the congregation. I put out there beside of it their version of Hollywood. Is that not who people are listening to today? They don't care what the Bible says. They don't care what God says. They don't care what uh, respected leaders. They want to know what uh, LeBron James says. They want to know what Sean Penn says. Lord have mercy, they want to know what Madonna says. I mean, what's wrong with that? <laughs> okay? And that's what they follow. And I'm, I'm trying my best to stay off of all this stuff going on today, but uh, you can just see that's just where people are going. And so, so they get a big group. And verse 3, they go down there and it says, uh, uh, they gathered themselves together against Moses and against Aaron. Now, that's clarifying for us that they're approaching and talking to them. But I'm going to tell you what the core problem here is with Korah. Is he doesn't have an issue with Moses and Aaron. He has an issue with God. Because God set this up. Moses and Aaron didn't do it. And he tells them, he says, you take too much upon you, if you look there in verse 3 of chapter 16, you take too much upon you seeing all the congregation are holy. Well, you know right there he's lying. Why would there even need to be an Ark of the Covenant if they were all holy? They could have already been communicating with God. He says, you take too much upon you seeing all the congregation are holy. Every one of them. He kind of threw that in there. And the Lord is among them. Wherefore then lift ye up yourselves above the congregation of the Lord. He's basically saying, why, why do you think you're so better than the rest of us? Attacking the preacher. And that happens a lot. I've never personally heard it myself, but I can tell, and I know, from hearing our pastor in his pulpit, it has happened to him. And not just him, it happens to all of them. All the pastors. I know it does. I, my dad was one, and I know it happened to him. <clears throat> and listen, I would have had a much more active response to it, but look at verse 4. It says, Moses heard it, he fell upon his face. That's the best thing to do. If Moses would have responded, like Bud said, he probably called lightning down lit him up, but, but he sought God's counsel. And, and the rest of the verse, it says, God tells him, he says, listen, you tell Korah and his bunch to go get their cisterns and put some fire in it and stand by the door of the tabernacle Call Aaron and his bunch, put fire in their cisterns and stand in front of the tabernacle. And while they're all standing there in front of the tabernacle, I'll tell you who I pick. God told Moses this. Okay? Now, verse 19. We see this thing has grown. But look, it says, And Korah gathered all the congregation. All the... Everybody is against them now. Korah gathered all the congregation against them unto the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. Alright? And God says, Moses, Aaron, get away from there. I'm going to just kill them all. And Moses said, Lord, let's just not go this far just because one man sinned. We've we got to have a, a better result than this. And God says, okay, you warn the congregation. You tell them to get away from that bunch. And Moses goes down and he tells them, he says, listen, it, it, God's going to deal with this group. You either stand with them or you stand with God and get away from them. And it said that no more than when Moses had stopped talking there in verse 32. And the earth opened up her mouth and swallowed them and their houses. 
and all the men. And when it says men, it's not just the men. It's talking about humans. It's the adults. It's the teenagers. It's the children. It's the newborns. And you think, man, how could God do that? It's not God's fault. It's not. God, God laid the law down and made it as clear as day what they had to do. And it wasn't entirely difficult for them to do this. All they had to do was follow it. And they chose to follow this man Korah. And so it said that the earth opened up and swallowed them up there. And then you flip over in verse 35, it says, And there came out a fire from the Lord and consumed the 250 men that offered incense. That's those princes that he gathered together. So God lit up Hollywood. <laughs> all right, and you think, wow. Now, all right, now that's a bad story. That's a horrifying thing to experience. I mean, you think about that. You're standing out here in this wilderness. And the earth just collapses right out from under them. There go the tents. There go the camels. There go the adult. There go the babies. Right. You'd think God had their attention. But the following verses, um, let me see, is down especially in verse 41. There it is. But on the morrow, there's that word but. <laughs> You know what the morrow means? It means tomorrow. The very next day. The very next day, all the congregation of the children of Israel murmured against Moses and against Aaron, saying, Ye have killed the people of the Lord. It's your fault. And you killed all them people. The very next day, the whole congregation, and we're talking millions. I'm sure there's probably one or two that had some common sense. But when it says all, that's pretty much all. About everybody. And God struck them with a plague. Now here, when, when Korah done his thing, it was 250 that he killed. They stood against him. These people murmured. Look over here in verse uh, 49. Now what had happened up to this is Moses told Aaron and said, hey, we can't let this continue. You need to go and pray in the place of these people. You need to pray for an atonement for these people. And so Aaron had to hurry and rush and pray for these people. In the meantime, there are people dying. This is how critical an emergency this was. In verse 49, or 48, and he, Aaron, stood between the dead and the living, and the plague was stayed. Now they that died in the plague were 14,700 people complaining. Now, here we have a group that in, in total defiance and disrespect stood against God. And you notice that, that when God called them out, they stood right there at the door of the tabernacle, right beside Aaron and his son. They thought they were right. Why else would they have stood in the presence of God? Why else would they stand in the door of God's house and proclaim to be right? If they had one hint that they might have been wrong, they would have been running. They thought they were right. And God struck 250 of them dead. And then the whole congregation murmurs and God kills over 14,000 of them. That's a horror story. Of a biblical proportion. 
But it doesn't stop there. This is just not some story from eons ago. Let's flip over to Matthew chapter 7. And I'm going to read that and then we'll, we'll pray. Matthew chapter 7 verse 21. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. Now what you have here is this is the very end of the Sermon on the Mount. This is Jesus beginning His ministry and He stands on this mount and He preaches this long sermon uh, that's got all these different sections on it. And uh, our pastor, I think it was last year, He went through all these sermons. A great series. And, And this is towards the end. Verse 21, it says... Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. But he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name have cast out devils? And in thy name done many wonderful works? And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. I've said it before and I say it again. This to me is I to me is the scariest passage in the Bible. Amen. These are people convinced. Yes, right. Convinced right. they're right. Yeah. And they go all the way to the judgment day right. and stand before God before they realize, oh no. Amen. It's when it hits them. Yeah. And the sad thing is, it's too late. It's too late. You cannot wait before you stand there and ask for mercy because the mercy has passed. When you stand here on the judgment day, it's called that because it's time for justice. No more time for mercy. The time for mercy has passed. And so to me, that is the scariest story in the Bible. And that's what we're going to talk about a little bit. So let's go to the Lord in a uh, word of prayer. Lord, we thank You for this morning. Lord, we thank You for this group that are gathered uh, together to hear Your Word. Lord, I pray that You would just take this Word uh, and spread it about amongst your people, Lord, is how you'd see fit. Lord, I pray for the prayer request uh, that we mentioned earlier, Lord, that you would just uh, deal with each one, Lord, according to your will. I pray that you'd just be with our pastor, Lord, heal him up, bring him back with us. Uh, Lord, help us in this month, this Pastor Appreciation Month, Lord, to appreciate, Lord, to not take him for granted, Lord, he, uh, for what he means to us, Lord. I thank you for that, him and his family. Lord, I pray that... You just speak to our hearts this morning, Lord. That's all I ask. Just speak to our hearts uh, and, and open our eyes to show us what you'd have us to see this morning in this passage. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. And <clears throat> I, I titled this the, storiest, uh, uh, the scariest story ever based on true events. Uh, because this is not just some story that Jesus is telling. This is actually going to happen. And this actually is happening. And it has happened. We've just seen that in the example of uh, uh, numbers with Korah. Uh, it's not something that's a one-time event and then it just stopped. It's a continual thing. But here in verse 21, uh, as we're looking at this, i, I got to skip through some of these notes because i got too many. But anyway, uh, verse 21, we see first of all here a strange address. A strange address. And we see first of all where he says there are not everyone that saith. Now, he's been preaching all along in his Sermon on the Mount, and, I, and he has said some great and wondrous things. I mean, you go back and look at some of these chapters. I think it starts chapter 5 or 4, somewhere in there. Chapter 5, it starts. Uh, we have the Beatitudes. We have, we have the, all those stories, that the false and true teachers, the unjust criticism, the golden rule. Everybody knows the golden rule. 
do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. Everybody likes to just pull that one trinket out and always oh, heard the Sermon on the Mount. That's like we sit there on Sunday morning, we all fall asleep, and in five seconds we wake up and hear one word, and we run with that. That's our gospel for the year. There's more to it than that. And in this passage, God's kind of getting their, uh, Jesus is kind of getting their attention here when He says, not everyone. And just in that phrase alone, that kind of wakes you up saying, okay, just the fact that He says, not everyone, tells us that there's this group that, that thinks one thing, but they're not all right. So he kind of, it's kind of an attention grabber. But He says, not everyone that saith. And in that phrase, not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. It sounds a lot like what we call the Lord's Prayer. It's not technically Lord's Prayer, but what we call the Lord's Prayer. Uh, and, and listen to it as you, as you follow that in the verse. It says, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy will be done, or, or yeah, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Sounds very similar. And you kind of get the idea that, that as we go through this progression, these people are, are following a regimented process. It's not here, it's there. Yeah. What they're following is what they're thinking. Yeah. They don't feel it. They haven't had it, the work on the inside. Okay, <clears throat> and, and this next phrase there, Lord, Lord. They're calling out to Him, Lord, Lord. And there's different names in the Bible for God. And I, and I don't have time to go into what each one of them mean. But this, this terminology here, Lord, Lord, is, is a, a response of respect. It's, it's like they were calling Him uh, teacher. Or, well, sir, you know, yes, sir, that sort of uh, title there. And it, as you read the rest of the passage, you can kind of understand uh, that verse uh, 23 says, they will stand, to me, stand before me in that day, that day, what day? The day of judgment. And so by the time they've reached this point, uh, they realize something's wrong. And in realizing something's wrong, they're having to address the judge himself. The one who set the rules down. The rules they violated. And they've got to stand there and answer for it. So when they call out to him, well, sir, uh, sir, uh, you kind of understand just like if you were standing in front of a judge today, you'd have that respect. But you see the shock, uh, the astonishment within their voices in realizing all this time, they thought they were right. They were convinced. And in the end, they were wrong. They were wrong. And that, that, that leads me to this idea of Christian. You ask everybody today, and I've hit on this before, everybody's a Christian. Are you a Christian? Well, yeah, I'm a Christian. I go to church. That has nothing to do with it. Now, I'm a Christian. My family's been a member down there for 50 years. That has nothing to do with it. Yeah, I'm a Christian. I'm a Methodist. I'm an Episcopalian. I'm a Roman Catholic. That has absolutely nothing to do with it. That's a title. That's an association. The wrong kind of association. It has to do with a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Christian means Christ-like. And we have erased that. We have forgotten that. We have watered it down to the point where on Sunday we attempt to be 
Christ-like in the fact that we may dress up in a coat, we may dress up in a tie, and we'll get in the car right here and fussing and cussing at everybody on the road. Uh, somebody doing 35 mile an hour down the road just aggravates and irates you to the point. Why? Because you're running late? Oh, oh, Billy Kelly said one that just cracked me up. He was like, yeah, you jump in the car screaming and hollering. You got a biscuit hanging out your mouth. Your wife's jumping in, got hose on one leg. You're running down the road, the door's wide open, the kids are grabbing on the handles. It sounds funny, but that fits. This world of technology. So much manual work we don't have to do anymore. Yet we're more busier than we've ever been. Andy Griffith. Look at that. How, how many episodes it show him sitting on the porch, playing the guitar, just quietly talking? We don't even build porches on our houses anymore. And when we do, all they do is hold a pumpkin. Right? We don't use the porch anymore. We don't gather. What does your dinner table look like? It's holding books and bags and boxes and mail. There's no dinner plates put on it anymore. Do you sit together as a family? We don't have time anymore. And I, and I, I, I get it. I, I like in our family. She works during the day and at night. And I work at night. It's like, you know, passing through the day and that sort of thing. And, and sometimes families are like that. Amen. You've got to force yourself to do this stuff. Amen. But just in that realm of Christian, I wanted to throw this out to you. I read this uh, in, in studying Revelation. John, uh, James Knox in his book, he said that, and it just astonished me to no end. He, he actually listed out, I kind of updated the figures, but when you look at the world religions by population, <coughs> all right, the total population right now, according to the world population clock, you can Google that, and it's counting right now. It's like at 7.8 billion. We're almost at 8 billion people. I, I can't even fathom that number myself. Millions, a lot. Billions, just... 7.8 billion. Out of that number, uh, you take the Muslims, the Hindus, the Buddhists, the Chinese traditionalists, the African traditionalists, the ethnic religious, the Sikhs, the Jews, the Baha'is, and the other religions. Those are what we determine. Well, we don't determine, but God says they are false religions. Okay? Based on what the Bible says in John chapter 14, 6, He says, I am the way. Yes, does that mention multiple avenues? No, sir. Multiple roads. The way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And then he clarifies it even further. He says, No man cometh unto the Father but by me. That means one path, one way, exclusively. There is no other way. So just by association of their religious theology alone, that is over 4.484 million, billion, sorry, billion people. That's 75% of them knocked right out of the doctor right there. Right. And you think, well, Christian. <laughs> what about those who are under that Christian umbrella? And there's still many religions under the Christian umbrella. In the world today, there's 1.2 billion Roman Catholics. There's 900 million Protestants. 500 million independents. Independence means uh, the Mormons, the Seventh-day Adventists, the uh, uh, Jehovah Witnesses, th those like that. Um, the Orthodox, 220 million. The Anglican, 80 million. Anglican is the English church. 
a kickoff of the Roman Catholics. They want to be different than Roman Catholics. Now Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 tells us clearly that salvation is by grace through faith and not of works. Salvation is by grace, not works. Yet, the majority of these religions that I mentioned all base their doctrine on works. So based on their theology and their doctrine alone, you're talking about another... Big group. <laughs> I'll read it in a minute. But, but I mentioned Protestants. Now by name, Protestants means they broke away. They protested the Roman Catholic Church. And, and that group includes Lutherans, the Methodists, the Episcopalians, uh, most of them. Now Baptists, by, by association or, or statement alone, uh, consider themselves a separate group. Amen. And the Bible says that they started there in Antioch. They are a church of their own. They are not Protestants. They did not break away from the Roman Catholic Church. They are an independent group. But even in the Protestants, a lot of them do believe some of the core doctrines. They may not believe in eternal salvation. But, and they may not believe in the blood. But, but when you talk about most Protestants, uh, consider that some of them are Christian in label alone. If you ask them to tell me why you're saved, they couldn't tell you. That's a good question to ask yourself. If you were standing in front of Jesus Christ today and He says to you, you tell me why you're saved. How are you saved? Can you answer that? We think that's a trivia question. That's not a trivia question. That's an eternal question. Your eternity is based on whether you know that. That's something you must know. But even in that, in that group, you consider those who rely on water baptism. Let's clarify, that is wrong. They don't work. That's an outward expression yes, of something that happened on the inside. Yes, so if you're relying on what the outward expression is, nothing's changed on the inside. Right. Uh, family ties. Like I mentioned a minute ago, your family's been in the same church for 50 years. You figure you remember you on the path. No, no. Social, political, or business association. Money. Buying your way in. Yeah. Don't work. Amen. Don't work. Yeah. What did Jesus say? I am the way. Yes, sir. Yeah. Amen. Then there are those who are seeking to ruin the church for various reasons. And you got those monsters out there. Yeah. They're just wanting to tear it down just because it's doing something good yes, and they're jealous. Amen. So they want to tear it down. Yeah. And then the number of those who know the way. They know the way of salvation. Yet they've never done anything about it. Yeah. Now of all that we've heard so far, that's the saddest thing. Yeah. Yeah. And there might be some sitting right here this morning. You've been in this congregation your entire life. You know the way. You've read the Bible. You know the jargon. You've got the head knowledge. Yeah. Yeah. Somebody asked you to explain uh, uh, justification. You can rattle it right off. But has anything happened here? Right. Has there been a change? Yes, sir. You must ask that question. If you don't, you're going to be like them that day. You're going to wake up and you're going to be standing before Him in a day of judgment. You're going to be saying, wait a minute. Lord, Lord, 
And he's looking at you like, I don't know who you are. That is a horror story. And that next phrase he said, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. And in his commentary, Peter Pett, he says words and outward gestures are not sufficient, even when they demonstrate a kind of submission to him. Looks like submission. Acts like submission. Sounds like submission. For if they would enter into the kingly rule of heaven, it involves submission to his Father's will. That means if you're going to be part of it, you've got to do it His way. That is actually only common sense. For entering into the kingly rule of heaven must involve precisely that. Submission to His Father's kingly rule. If you're going to heaven, if you think you're going to heaven, to be a part of it, you've got to do it His way. It's His heaven. He set the rules up. Now look at this next part. The profitable works here says... Uh, but he that doeth. Notice the first part of that verse says, he that saith. Now we're getting to the part where he says, he that doeth. Different types of thing there. Everything short of this is only saying, Lord, Lord. Have you done what he asks? Are you doing the work for him in his way? And then he says there, uh, <clears throat> but he that doeth the will of my Father. Now there's a change here. Up to this point, it has been your Father. Our Father. Like when he gave the uh, Lord's Prayer, our Father. Here he says, my Father. Now this is a distinct change in the fact that he's letting them know that by saying it's my Father, that he's saying I am one with God. And the only one my father recognizes is his children. So if you're not following his will, if you're not doing it his way, he doesn't know who you are. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And in essence, I don't know who you are. Yeah. I and my father are the same. That's what he's saying there. All right. Now, uh, let's look at verse 22. Many will say, now here's the change. Verse 21, it says, not everyone. And he kind of narrows it down here in the fact where he says, many will say. Not everyone means there are going to be some that fall short. There are going to be some that don't make it. Now here he kind of tells us it's not just a few as we're thinking. It's going to be a lot. Many. That's a lot in the Greek. <laughs> a lot. Many will say. Say, what a contrasted difference. They're not doing, but they're going to say that they did it. And in that phrase, have we not? Have we not? It's very interesting to note uh, that Jesus never denies that miracles were actually happening. He's not denying that these people were doing miracles. They were prophesying. They were casting out demons. They were doing good works in His name. But I ask you this. If you're casting out a demon, what's being put back in? That's the difference. You're creating an empty shell if you're not doing it right. And so something else will come along and fill it up. You've not made them any better. What are you prophesying? Well, 
I can tell you, I can make some prophecies this morning. <laughs> you probably could too. You think about it a little bit enough. Nostradamus, boy, they keep looking at all that stuff he said. If, if you look long and hard enough, you'll fit it in somewhere. Our world's crazy enough. You can fit about anything in anywhere. You notice on TV now, you remember old Dion Warwick? I tell them that at work all the time. I'm not a fortune teller. Dion Warwick's retired and I lost my crystal ball. Yeah. And you remember she had that big old California psychic network? And they threw them all in jail and fined them all and they went away. Well, now they're back. They're all over flooding the TV. All, I've never heard a future like that. And, and, and like I said a couple weeks ago, that, that preacher told her, says, well, you tell me what I did yesterday. I'll give you everything I got. Yeah. They're not interested in that. They want to tell you good stuff. Only good stuff. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> but here, he doesn't deny that miracles have been taking place. That miracles have been happening. In the ancient world, uh, miracles were common events. They took place all the time. And what, what it is based in is that they looked at when someone got ill, when someone got sick, that it had to do with demon possession. And the demon possession came from the fact that whatever they were doing was wrong and God was judging them. Okay? And it's very clear that the disciples had not got that out of their minds. John chapter 9, verses 1 through 2, it says, And as Jesus passed by, he saw a man which was blind from his birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Master, who did sin? This man or his parents that he was born blind? That's the mindset. Every time they saw somebody who was blind, somebody who had leprosy, somebody who was crippled, somebody had done something wrong to cause that. We have this concept that if you're right and you're doing what God says, everything's perfectly clear. Everything goes right. Every answer to prayer is yes. That is not what God says in His Bible. He promises us in Corinthians that we're going to face trials. But he tells us that when we face them trials, he makes a way, not out of it, but a way through it. And you think, well, how mean can God be to test you and, and put you through that? It's to make you better. You know what it is? It's to make you more Christ-like. To make you a better Christian. You don't just get saved and automatically are doing everything the right way. You have to learn. And it's just like a human body. You have to learn to walk. You don't just get up and start walking. You've got to fall. You've got to scrape your knee a couple of times. You've got to hit your head a couple of times. Even now we hit our heads, don't we? Sometimes we fall. You've got to learn to walk. Same thing in the Christian life. You have to learn how to do that walk. And it involves some scrapes. It involves some scars. It involves some badges. I don't know. You can't see it right here. I've got a, a scar, and it goes all the way through. 48 stitches, 24 outside, 24 inside. You know how I got this? I don't remember how it was, 8, 9, 10, something like that. We're getting ready to go out to eat. Daddy says, don't go outside and play. You've already been dressed. Don't do it. But what am I going to do? Right out the door, I go. I hop on my bike. And we lived on a road. It starts on the top of a hill. And it comes naturally down and it flattens out in the end of a cul-de-sac. And there's a dirt field out at the end with a big old barn. Perfect for racing bikes. You never have to hit the brakes. I mean, it's wide open, hair flying, teeth grinning the whole way. So we're out there racing bikes. 
But this time, one of them houses at the top of the hill got a German shepherd smart enough to know how to open that fence on his own. And he and I are not friends. <laughs> so the minute the guy says go, and we take off with them bikes, that German shepherd, I look down and he's right there at my feet. But once I see that German shepherd, I don't care where I'm going. I'm watching where he's going. And the next thing I know is I see a faint color of light blue. And it wasn't Tar Heels. It said Chevrolet. And I hit that thing wide open. And busted my mouth wide open. And here I am. I'm cut all the way through. And all them kids, like cockroaches when the lights come on. Everybody disappeared. I had to walk home. And I'm like, there ain't no way I'm hiding this. I'm just drenched. Mama still kept that shirt. Yeah, she keeps all it. Still got all that on there. And I had to walk through that front door. I mean, I might as well admit it. You can't hide that. It's everywhere. Dr. Pat Savoris. I still remember the doctor's name. Imagine that. I can't remember half of what I did last week. I still remember his name. Stitched me up. Gave me a sucker. And I was like, please just hold on to me for a couple of days because I know what's happening when I get home. <laughs> I actually got out of that. But I wear the scars. You know why? Because I didn't follow the instructions. Even today, I have that scar. Forty-some years later. And we do that as Christians, do we not? When we disobey, and sometimes we get them scars, we remember them. We carry them through life. That's just the way it is. It's just the way it happens. All right, and I chased that rabbit far enough. All right, let's go back to this. Now, in seeing that, that the mindset was that some of these miracles were based on if you disobey God, this is what you get. You get blind. You get crippled. Things of that nature. That, that, the disciples even thought it themselves. Okay? Now, we know uh, when we went through Revelation and we talked about the temple of Diana. You remember I told you about how they pulled that. There are some things that they did in the ancient world we still don't know how they did them. We still don't know how they accomplished them. The ancient Romans could make water run uphill. Figure that one out. Try and get your science professor at school to show you how to make water run uphill. They did it. But here, that temple of Diana, just a short description, they had uh, the, the God in the temple behind a closed stone door. And as you prayed, if your heart was right, and if you paid enough money, and if you did everything just right, them doors would open and the God would reveal Himself to you. Now, if, if you have no other idea then what you've been taught as you grew up and you're doing that, you're praying, and them doors open up. What are you going to think? He answered my prayer. This is real. I saw Him reveal Himself to me. And you're going to go and tell everybody. And you think, well, how did that happen? And they used steam. And as that steam pressure would build up, it would push a piston up that would open that door. And as the steam dissipated, the pressure dissipated, it closed back. A simple in this day that we know how it works. They didn't know how it worked. So they were deceived in thinking that what they saw was real. And today the Bible tells us, who are you dealing with when you talk about Satan? The master deceiver. 
master. That means nobody's better at it than he is. And if you think you got a, a, a hand up on him, you have already deceived yourself. He ain't got to work very hard on you. Mark chapter 9, verses 38 through 41. And John answered him, saying, Master, we saw one casting out devils in thy name, and he followeth not us. What one of us inner circle. And we forbade him because he followed not us. But Jesus said, Forbid him not, for there is no man which shall do a miracle in my name that can lightly speak evil of me. For he that is not against us is on our part. For whosoever shall give, a, give you a cup of water to drink in my name, because ye belong to Christ, verily I say unto you, he shall not lose his reward. Now you think, wow, that sounds a lot like it's contrasting what it said. They said, Lord, Lord, in my name, right? So what's the difference? It's, what he is not saying is that anything done in my name is holy and righteous. And that's what's going on today. That's where people are being so deceived when they hear the name Christ, when they hear the name God, when they hear the name Christian, they automatically think because of that association with that title, it must be right. And uh, one of the commentaries, I, I think it was that Peter Pett, he mentioned in there, or John Trapp, I forget, I've I read a couple of them, but it said, how many ships named Godspeed sunk? How many ships named Good Fortune were captured by pirates? That's a pretty good point. <laughs> Just the association of a name means good fortune doesn't always mean that's what happens. And just because somebody says they're a Christian, don't take it for face value. Just because somebody tells you, well, this is what the Lord told me, don't mark that down. Check it for yourself. Your eternity may be based on what you're trusting that that man says. Check it by what this says. The Bible. God's Word. Don't take man's word for it. Don't take my word for it. And our pastor would tell you yourself. You check it for yourself. Okay? Are all prancers answered with yes? Obviously not. Some say they are. <laughs> I've got a few no's in my lifetime. How about you? I've got a few just wait. Just hold on. Stand still. <laughs> I can't do that. I hate doing that. I hate standing still. But that's when God does His greatest work. Yeah. Is when you stand still and let Him do the work. We don't like to hear that. It's got to be something going on. Yeah. <clears throat> Look at the next part there. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in Thy name? Have we not cast out devils in Thy name? And in thy name done many wonderful works. Man, on the outside, that's like a silver platter. If anybody should be ushered into heaven, it's somebody gaining the people, right? Doing good things. It looks good on the surface. In his commentary, John Gill says, And who doubts but Judas the traitor was a good preacher? Judas could preach. Judas called Jesus Lord. Judas cast out demons. Yet in retrospect, we know he was a traitor. He deceived Jesus. The difference is the attitude in the heart. 
inside. Either through being deceived or self-pride, the point is this, their actions are not the will of God. And listen, I've asked this question myself. This is one I thought. I've got a, a lot of friends who are, are not independent Baptists like me. They may be Methodists. They may be uh, Christian <laughs> or, or of that other nature. And, and, and they use another Bible, another book, than the King James Bible. And I think, and, and, and they, listen, let's just be honest. Some of them, they walk a better Christian faith walk than I do. Yeah. It's like they pray harder than I do. They're more active in testifying than I am. But if what they're doing involves a wrong Bible, right. yeah. and then based on what the Bible tells me, a church that's not right, what is the result of that? What about those people that might be getting saved in that church? Are they being deceived? Are they really getting saved? That's a heavy question. And I mean, because we bring it right down. This was my point of the whole thing because that was the thought in my head. How do we know we're right? How do you know that what you've got is the real deal? Many will say, they think the same thing you're thinking right now where you're sitting this morning. What I've got's the goods. What I've got's right. I know without a doubt. Do you? Do you know for a fact? And you say, I'll deal with it tomorrow. I'll think about it later. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. Because I'll tell you what's going to happen. You wait till tomorrow. Here's the answer you're going to look. Look down in verse 23. And then... Will I? You notice he didn't say God. He said I. Jesus is the judge here. He said, then will I profess unto them. I never knew you. What does that statement say? It's not saying that at some point we come to the, the, the conclusion that you don't believe like me so we parted ways. There never was a parting because there never was a coming together. Right, yeah. They never were a part of the truth. Yeah. So, in essence, to, I guess to answer my question, it is that the results are not what's the problem. It's the methods. Yeah. Are you doing it because of what you think? Or are you doing it by what He is guiding you to do? Amen. I, I've said it before many times, just like what those they said there in John 9. When you see somebody that's going through a lot of trouble... Sometimes we do think that. I wonder what they did wrong. Why is God letting them suffer? We think it's all bad. Suffering is never any good in it, you think. You know? Why are they going through that? They may have the capability to handle more than you do, and God puts a little bit more on them because in the end, they're going to get more out of it than you would. And why would God put it on them? Because He knows they know how to get through the way. You may not know how to get through the way. That's why God doesn't put on you what He put on somebody else. God knows your limitations. God knows what you can handle. And He's not going to put more on you than you can handle. And we think we can't handle it. I'm telling you, you twist the screw a little bit. Lord, give it up. No, I can't do it. <laughs> right? Because we don't want to suffer. Nobody wants to suffer. We like the, the, the meadows of flowers and the walking down the dirt path and 
quiet and the birds are singing. Well, we don't like the crashing thunder and heavy rains. We don't like that. It's uncomfortable. But yet, we're going to have to face it sooner or later. To grow, there has to be storms. There has to be storms. But he tells them here, he said, I never knew you. Do you get that? This whole time, they thought what they had been doing was right. They had been prophesying. They had been witnessing. They had been preaching. They had been teaching. They had been telling others about Christ. And no doubt some of them had some converts. I don't doubt that a bit. Some of these will be standing there and say, I did great things in your name. In your name. And God's looking at them and saying, or Jesus looking at them and saying, I don't know who you are. You didn't do it for me. You did not do it for me. And then in the end, he says, depart from me. Depart. Depart alone is bad enough. But he says, depart from me. You know what that is? That's the end of all hope. Because if you're expecting to go to heaven, what's in heaven? Jesus Christ is in heaven. That's why we want to go to heaven, to be with Him. And if you have no part with Him, then you have no heaven. All you have is hell waiting on you. And if you don't realize it, that's the greatest horror story that you can know today. You're running wide open down the highway to hell and not even know it. And in this age, there has been great deception. Do I need to even say anything more than the media? Look at these people. Well, CNN said, really? Come on, man. Fox News is corrupted. Don't just trust on what they say. They're all corrupted. You know why? The almighty dollar. If they're not getting you worked up in a lather, they're not doing their job. Sources say, really. It's the same guy sitting in a closet somewhere calling you on his e-phone. Sources say. Give me a break. Can't trust any of it no more. And then that last phrase, you that work iniquity. He says work here, not work it or had worked. In other words, they are fresh out of doing the work. They were snatched right out of the middle of prophesying or snatched right out of the middle of casting out a demon. But they were doing it in their own name. Workers of iniquity. That word iniquity there means lawlessness. That means they didn't have the authority to do what they were doing. That'd be the same as if you're running up and down the road out here and arresting people for speeding. And you're not a law officer. That's a work of iniquity. A lawlessness. And that's what he's telling them. You did all this without the authority. You did all this without the permission. You did all this without my knowing. You did it on your own. So, in conclusion, these verses contain without any doubt one of the most terrible thoughts in all the Bible. Is there anything more sad, more scary than to think you know right and in the end to find out you're wrong? That should make every one of us in here think, man, do I really have the goods? Have I been handed a lie? Am I just sitting comfortable because I've been deceived? I think what I have is real. Do you know 
that you know that you're saved this morning. Without any doubt. And I'm telling you, as a young Christian, I did. I struggled that. I fought with that. Do I really do? do? And I believe it was Charles Mustard or, or, or uh, David Epps said it. He said, I never worried about my salvation until after I was saved. That's when He's working on you. That's when you doubt it. So if it's a constant struggle in your mind, you just need to check up to be sure. But if you've never wondered about it, that should be a hammer knock at your door. That should make you tremble in your shoes this morning. That should make you sweat. That should make you worry. That should scare you to death. That it's never bothered you. That it's never concerned you. That it's never made you wonder. That should be enough. Alright, so let's stand this morning. And we know there when that story of Korah happened. That's Numbers chapter 16. This was not the, t- the first time God had been challenged. Numbers chapter 4 tells us that Levi had two boys, priests. They had been named priests by God Himself. And they had been told, you do this this way, you do that that way. Do that. And two of His boys took it upon themselves, they said, let's offer up a sacrifice to God. Let's do a good thing. And it says that they took fire in there, strange fire, and God killed them. And so I ask you this morning, are you bringing strange fire to God? Is what you have real? Or are you going to be like one of these that stand there and think all this time you were right, but in the end you're wrong? So if you will bow your heads, I just want you to pray this morning and ask yourself is what you're holding in your cistern this morning strange fire? If not, you ought to thank God for that this morning. Listen, the Bible tells us Satan's out there like a roaring lion seeking to devour every one of us. And in seeking to devour you He is the master deceiver. He knows exactly what will trip you up. The only thing this morning, if you're not saved, the only thing that's saving you is the fact that God in His love and in His mercy is protecting you from being just ravening. If you need to, you can come to the altar, pray about it. If not, Pray where you're at. But I implore you this morning, those of us that have just been walking in our parents' feet, those of us that have just been trusting in the fact that we belong to this church, those of us that say that, well, I think I'm doing the best I can, you need to get that settled. And you need to get it settled right now. It's that important. This is a life or death situation. It's that serious. Okay? All right, let's be dismissed in word.